0: Hill explains where I invite you to join the science teaching conversation with me about Thomas Henry Huxley, a Wikipedia reading. Now, uh, the Huxleys produced a really big um, family of philosophers, so there's a lot of them there. There's Alist uh, Huxley, who died in, or oh, I think, 1962 63. About the time I was born, I think the day, the, the day that I was born. And yeah, in fact, I was born when he died. President Kennedy also died at that point in time. His brave new world, and a sort of a sort of a a popular philosopher, experimented with the drugs and that type of stuff. His whatever it is, uh, uh, forefather, grandfather, or something like that, uh, was Thomas Huxley. Now, very important. Um, influential uh, philosopher, but he was more in terms of running a mark in Victorian England and uh, setting up some of the views and philosophies that we have today, in terms of that he um, sort of pushed back against the dominance of the church. And you've got to understand that way up till 1911, they didn't actually speak teach English literature in English universities because they believed religion was doing a very good job of what English literature should do. And so religion was doing a very, very good job. So actually, it actually was, act, had a sort of a choking effect on British education. Even though Britain was advancing and they needed a religion to export with their soldiers and their colonies as part of the culture, they needed religion to go with it. They It was also choked. So it's very interesting to to hear about this chap. So I'm just going to read about him. Thomas Henry Huxley. Okay. uh, The Right Honourable. So he's a thing. was an English biologist and anthropologist specializing in comparative anatomy. Known as Darwin's Bulldog for his advocacy of Charles Darwin's theory of evolution. Comparative anatomy is the actual um, pre-thing which... Uh, Vesalius did. Let's do an autopsy of a human and a chimpanzee at the same time so we can see the differences. Then, in the museums, as I organised them, Lamarck was in comparative anatomy. So, comparative anatomy was a sort of a stepping stone from I'm comparing this and that, I think it might be evolution. The stories regarding Huxley's famous debate in 1660 with Samuel Luleforce, uh were a key moment uh, in a wider acceptance of evolution and in his own career, although historians think that the surviving story of the debate uh, is uh, a later fabrication. I think we had a debate between um, Dawkins and Pell in Australia, uh, it's one where both sides, just a meeting of logic and illogic. Huxley had been planning to leave Oxford on the previous day, but after an encounter with Robert Chambers, the author of Vestiges, chances of mind decided to join the debate. Wilderforce was coached by Richard Owen, against whom Huxley also debated about whether humans were closely related to apes. Uh, now, Vestiges uh, is, I think, a pamphlet which got completely murdered so vestiges, I think, uh, would be actual... Uh, There's vestige, vestige, vestige organs and stuff like that from our evolution. they still there, very tiny organs in us. Um, but um, this is the, the style, style of debate. It's rather interesting. Huxley was slow to accept some of Darwin's ideas, such as gradualism, and was undecided about natural selection. But despite this, he was wholehearted, in his public support of Darwin. So that's an important aspect. So natural selection is, is a mechanism which evolution goes through. So evolution is not natural selection. Natural selection is a mechanism to ensure evolution. Uh, so evolution happens naturally. So if I have an animal and it's completely okay with this environment it will still evolve. It's not. There's not a stable. It's not a stable, stable thing. So uh, it might become more varied or or, or get more variations in it. Um, yeah. So so will supposedly a debate in which the it was a, a turning point debate. Um, now gradualism is an idea in Lamarck as well. Uh, So there was Cobur who had sudden evolution that God came in and said, Righto, it's God day, day, your giraffe, uh, your neck is getting long, your die, let's go. Salt, halt, stop, clap, the clapperboard comes down and the animals dress up as something else. Bring in new animals, completely new animals. So a... A new animal appears. It's because God said, "Go." I can't have you here. I have to wait till the rest of the environment is there for you. Um, instrumental in developing scientific education in Britain, he fought against the extreme version of religious traditions. So it's him, Huxley, and Faraday in this early report to get British and science education here. It is interesting in that. Some of the debating techniques in um, the idea of science as a debate that you win is very much in this coffee table book I was reading there is it's more important to get the point across than to get any nuances across you, If you give an argument and it 's nuanced and more informative and less effective all well, that loses it It's more important to win. The argument there and there for that debate to survive for the next debating point, which is slightly different from um, everything else in life. Um, Originally, coining the term in 69, Huxley elaborated on agnosticism. So he is the father. So, as far as the scientist, he's the father of agnosticism. Uh, and in 1889 to frame the nature of claims in terms of what is knowable and what is not. Huxley states so this sort of side steps just, I'm agnostic I, yeah, I, there the could be a god but I don't know about it. agnosticism in fact is not a creed but a method the essence of which lies in rigorous application of a single principle the fundamental axiom of modern science it matters in matters of intellect, follow the reason as far as you can take it without regard to any other considerations. In matters of intellect, do not pretend that conclusions are certain uh, which are not demonstrable. Demonstratable. So, agnostic is that I have to say that I uh, practice agnosticism, but if I was a betting man, I would say I'm an atheist. So, I, I would say if I had to lay my money on it, I'd say look, there's no God, or something like that. But an um, agnostic is, agnostic is a, a practicing scientist. I would say, use of that term has continued to the present day. Um, much of Huxley's, uh, ag- agnosticism uh, is influenced by Kantian views of human perception and ability to rely on rational evidence rather than belief systems. And this is the key thing uh, for Kant, if I could do, is that um, he Kant said this major, major point of rationalism in that you no longer can download a Bible and go. You have to download rationalism because the world is so complicated. But you can still have, rationalism can still wrap around a Bible. So you, you uh, rather than pull out, you pull out the Bible, wrap it in rationalism, and shove it back in the, your stuff. That was Kant's belief. That is, that Newton tended to suggest you can just put in rationalism, uh, and he said put the Bible in the center of it. You can't. I'll, I'll have to do that. Huxley had little formal schooling and is virtually self taught, which is pretty amazing. He became perhaps the finest comparative anatomist. Uh, of the later 19th century. He worked on invertebrates, classifying relationships between groups previously little understood. Later he worked on vertebrates, especially on the relationship between apes and humans. After comparing Archelophagex uh, with the comments, he concluded that birds evolved from small carnivorous dinosaurs. So, that's a pretty amazing um, thing. So, looking at this very early dinosaur. Okay, come across. The tendency has been for this fine anatomical work to be overshadowed by his energetic controversial activity in the favor of evolution and by his extensive public work on scientific education, both of which had less significant effects on society in Britain and elsewhere. Huxley's Romer's lecture, Evolution of Ethics, is exceedingly influential in China. The Chinese traditional uh, translation of Huxley's lecture is even transformed the Chinese translation um, uh, of Darwin's origin of species. I think uh, that that is really, really interesting about um, uh, ethics um, and comparative knowledge. This is the thing of just saying there's a matter of religion, but now there's a matter of intellect. And what really goes is that that's also in organisations. You have the organisation's values, but then you have the laws of the land and equality, and we're just going to do those first, and other things will follow from it. Could you just get out of my um, my area? So he's he's a really um, uh, interesting person, but, but it's also interesting how um, that debate goes, and he's you no. Know, I think his ideas hasn't, got, haven't, hasn't, hasn't gone forward, but his ideas are also old. So the, the old ideas can, I think, be quite decayed by the way we do uh, set up schools and stuff. Tom Huxley was born in Earling, which is in the village, was then a village in Middlesex. He was the second youngest of eight children to George Huxley and Rachel Withers. Like some other British scientists of the 19th century, such as Alfred Russell Wallace, Huxley was brought up a literate middle-class family which had fallen on hard times. His father was a mathematics teacher at the Ealing School until it closed, putting the family into financial difficulties. As a result, Thomas left school at the age of 10 after only two years of formal schooling, which is interesting. And then the same sort of thing happened to Mindliff. His dad went blind. He was no longer in the school. Despite the unenviable start, Huxley was determined to educate himself. He became one of the great autodidactics of the 19th century. Do you think I'm an autodidactic? Must be. Um, I think autodidacticism is the principal form of education by the internet. Autodidactic plus agnosticism will get us far. At the first he read uh, Thomas Cutter, James Hutton's Geology. To James Hutton, I just um, and Hamilton's logic. Oh, gee, what was this Hamiltonian's In his teens, he taught himself German, eventually becoming fluent and used and used by Charles Darwin as a translator of scientific material in German. He he learned Latin and enough Greek to read Aristotle in its original. Can I say that learning Latin or having enough Latin? It's so hard the way it's taught. And it's thing, But it is very, very worthwhile to read in the original because, say, at least Newton's Principalia, if you read the original Latin, you realise that this guy didn't have access to mathematical machinery that we had. We translate... And that's too hard. We give it mathematical machinery. So, so what we do is we reinterpret Newton's Latin and add some modern maths to it. So it seems as though Newton is coming up with modern maths and we don't see where this culture has come across. So we don't understand the limitations of what Newton was thinking because we have souped it across and we souped it across with symbols and mathematics which has been developed from the teaching of Newton. So it's very hard to get an idea of what Newton said because the translation involves a whole lot of people interpreting Newton. It's amazing. Later on uh, as a young adult. He made himself an expert first on invertebrates, then uh, invertebrates, then on vertebrates, all self-taught. He was skilled in drawing and did many illustrations of his publications on marine invertebrates. In his later debates and writings on science and religion, his grasp of theology was better than many of his clerical opponents. Huxley, a boy who left school at 10, then became one of the most knowledgeable men in Britain. Is that Now, this is really interesting that uh, if you are competing against knowledge acquisition and you are selling it as a a product, you will not respond to anyone who's self-taught. Now, unfortunately there's a lot of mad people, but it's sort of like someone who can tend their own garden. I've got professional gardening. You will come in and rip the shit out of them. It's amazing. He was apprenticed for short periods to several medical practitioners. At 13, his brother-in-law, John Cook, in Coventry, who passed him to Thomas Chander, notable for experimenting with mesmerism for medical purposes. Now, mesmerism is the idea there's a magnetic field. You hold a magnet and you can actually fix someone. It's bizarre. Um standards uh, practice in London. Rothcoats amidst the squalor endured by the Sothorian poor. So let's imagine this he's he's in Dix, he's out of Dickens. He's a Dickens character almost. Uh, and um, uh, the idea of this person is a quack, isn't he? He Thomas would uh, have seen poverty, crime, and rampant disease at its worst. Next, another brother-in-law took me on, John Salt, his elder uh, sister's husband. Now sixteen, Huxley entered Sittingham College behind the University College Hospital, a cut-price anatomy school whose founder, Marshall Hall, discovered the reflex arc. Wow! Isn't that, but that is also interesting in terms of you've got the front, which is. Doing the wealthy and clean, and then you've got the uh, the working school. I, I don't know what, what what the equivalent of that is. It's sort of like, uh, say, if you did an Oxford University cooking class for well-to-do people, a little kitchen. It wouldn't do do a lot, but it would be Oxford University. So the reflex art. So the reflex art is basically if I hit your hammer on your nose, uh, hammer on your knee. It sends a nerve pulse out and then it goes up um, and pushes out. Or if I hit an elbow, or if there are things where a reflex out is an involuntary um, um, action. So it's it's sort of like a a hyperspeed. Your logic is in your body. So your hand will pull away from fire because the heat... um, Uh, mechanism will actually go into your arm and trigger it's like your brain is is put outside Um, all the time Huxley continued his program of reading which more than made up for his lack of formal schooling perhaps this is what I'm doing at the moment in terms of obviously I'm going against brain damage and stuff like that but I'm reading ahead and I suppose I'm getting a little bit angry at at the um, at at people who sell their wares, but they are commercial. They sell their knowledge commercially, and so they're not going to be critical, and they're going to have they're going to have time, you know, not time to actually spoil themselves. Uh, A year later, buoyed by excellent results and a silver medal prize at the apothecary's apothecary's yearly competition, uh, Axley was admitted to study at Charing Cross Hospital where he obtained a small scholarship. The Charing Cross uh, he was taught by Thomas Wharton-Jones, Professor of Ultramaric Medicine and Surgery at University College London. Jones had been Robert Knox's assistant when Knox brought cadavers from Burke. Uh, from Birkenhead, whatever that means, the young Wharton Jones who acted as a go-between, was exonerated of crime and thought best to leave to Scotland. So, this is again, I suppose it would be a problem in trying to actually get things to go. His fine teacher up-to-date in physiology and also an athletic surgeon. 1845 under Walton Jones's garden, Huxley published his first scientific paper demonstrating the existence of a hitherto unrecognized layer in the inner uh, sheath of hairs a layer which is known ever since as the Huxley layer so what I do not understand what that means does hair happen in inner sheath no doubt remembering this and of course knowing his merit Later in life, Huxley organised a pension for his old tutor. Is that not not, is that not right? And this is the really important thing, is that your power base as teaching in teaching is to have connection with all the parents and stuff like that, and they will feed back. Perhaps you'll be looked after. At twenty he passed his first M.B. examination at the University of London win gold medal in anatomy and physiology. However, he did not present himself for the final second M.B. exam and consequently did not qualify for the university degree. His apprenticeship and exams results form a sufficient basis for his application for the Royal Navy. Oh, that's a U.S. thing. Age 20, Huxley was too young to apply to the Royal College of Surgeons for a license to practice. Fuck. Oh, you mentioned a doctor ship's doctors would know nothing yet he was in deep debt so at a friend's suggestion he applied for appointment in the royal navy all right uh, he had references on characters as you've been showing his time spent in his apprenticeship and on the requirements such as dissection and pharmacy so william burnett if we have a burnett street here Physician General of the Navy interviewed him and arranged for the College of Surgeons to test his competence by means of viva voce, whatever means, speech. Finally Huxley made assistant surgeon, surgeon's mate, by the pra- uh, practised marine naturalist in HMS Rattlesnake, about to set sail on a voyage of discovery, surveying New Guinea and Australia. The Rattlesnake left, wow, so he came out to Australia, the bastard. Uh, left England on the 3rd of December, 1946. Uh, once they had arrived in the Southern Hemisphere, Huxley devoted his time to study marine invertebrates. He began to send details of his discoveries back to England, where publication was arranged by Edward Forbes, FRS, who had been a pupil of Knox, both before and after the voyage, Forbes was, was something of a mentor to Huxley. Huxley's paper on the anatomy and the affinities of the family of Medusae, Wow, was published in... 1849, by the Royal Society in its philosophical translations, Huxley united the Hydroid and Seclurian polyps in the Mudusi to form a class of which is known subsequently, gave the name Now, I don't know whether Mudusi is actually two species together, so this is a sea fish, a, a jellyfish which long tentacles and kills things. The next he made was that all the members of the class consisted of two cell layers. Hun, where you go now? Yeah, I'd love to. Another podcast, another story comes to a close. It's been a pleasure sharing this moment in time with you. How you discover truly amazing things. Understand them and tell others. Thanks for listening.